0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. In this episode, we're covering someone who, while not primarily a surgeon, had an outsized influence on the development of modern surgery. He did this by helping to break the centuries-long grip of the Roman physician Galen on the knowledge of anatomy, challenging dogma with empirical evidence, and sharing it with the world with his magnum opus, the De Humani Corporis Fabrica, considered the first modern anatomy textbook. So let's meet the author, known simply as Vesalius, in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Andreas van Wessel was born in Brussels, at the time part of the Habsburg Netherlands, probably on December 31st of 1514. These older dates are a little more hazy, it seems. We all now know him as Andreas Vesalius, the Latinized version of his name. Andreas was born into a long line of physicians, his great-grandfather was physician to Maria, the wife of Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian I, and his grandfather Eberhard was a court physician. Vesalius' father was an apothecary to Charles V, king of Spain and the Holy Roman Emperor. Vesalius was first enrolled in the Brethren of the Common Life in Brussels to learn Greek and Latin in preparation for the study of medicine. At the age of 15, he entered the University of Leuven, which was Belgium's first university, having been established in 1425. There, Andreas studied the arts, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, but also devoted a lot of time to the dissection of small animals of all sorts. After three years, he transferred to the University of Paris to study medicine. While there, Andreas studied the theories of Galen, the giant of medicine from the ancient Roman Empire, whose ideas continued to dominate Western thought. This led to an interest in anatomy, and while he likely only saw three or four dissections in his time there because formal anatomical instruction was minimal, Andreas would often be found examining the excavated bones in the charnel houses of the Cemetery of the Innocents. It's been said that he became so adept at bone anatomy that he could identify each bone when blindfolded. He also worked on dissections for an anatomical text by Jean Gunther of Andernacht, who gave Vesalius credit for discovering the spermatic vessels, which we now call the testicular arteries. A quick note of explanation. A charnel house is a place where skeletal remains are stored typically after having been unearthed while digging new graves. Fun fact, the Latin root word for charnel is carnis, meaning of the flesh, which is the same root word for chili con carne, meaning chili with meat, and the word carnival, which is from carn, flesh, and levar, to put away. The original carnivals were public celebrations in the days leading up to Lent, a period in the Catholic Church where devotees typically fast and so put away rich foods like meat he'll never look at a carnival the same way again. Back to Vesalius. In 1536, he was forced to leave Paris before graduating due to hostilities opening between the Holy Roman Empire and France due to his family's involvement with the royal family. And so he briefly returned to Leuven in Belgium. From there, he went on to what, at the time, was one of the most famous medical schools in all of Renaissance Europe, the University of Padua in Italy. Let's take a minute to appreciate the significance of this institution. Initially founded as a school of law in 1222 CE, or Common Era, Padua is the world's fifth oldest surviving university. For the curious, the University of Bologna in Italy is the oldest, dating back to 1088. From the 15th to 18th century, Padua was renowned for research in areas as diverse as medicine, astronomy, philosophy, and law. Its famous anatomical theater was opened in 1595, the oldest surviving permanent anatomical theater in Europe. Vesalius graduated as doctor of medicine a year later on December 5th, 1537, with a thesis on the ninth book of Razi's, published as his first book, called Paraphrasis. Razi's, you may recall from episode 45, was a Persian physician from the 9th to 10th century CE. On the day of graduation, Vesalius was offered the chair of surgery and anatomy at Padua, and became a guest lecturer at Bologna and Pisa. While he would only stay for six years, the impact he would make would change medicine forever. Prior to starting his position at Padua, Vesalius traveled throughout Italy and even assisted the future Pope Paul IV and Ignatius of Loyola, founder of the Society of Jesus, a.k.a. the Jesuits, to heal those afflicted with Hansen's disease, which is more commonly known as leprosy. Interestingly, the oldest skeletal evidence for the disease dates back to 2000 BCE. It's caused by bacteria, known as Mycobacterium leprae, which was discovered by Norwegian physician Gerhard Henrik Armoir Hansen, hence Hansen's disease, in 1873. This made it the first bacterium to be identified as causing disease in humans, but I digress. While his time as an instructor was short, Vesalius radically changed the way anatomy was performed and taught. Let's paint a picture. In the era leading up to Vesalius, A small number of students would attend a lesson that a young anatomy lecturer, usually drawn from the more esteemed field of physicians, would give from an elevated dais. He would read from an anatomical text, typically written by Galen, describing the organs and their presumed functions. The actual dissection was left to a barber surgeon to reveal the organ in question, with an ostensor, meaning an exhibitor, who would point out the relevant anatomy with a rod. Vesalius collapsed these three positions into one, acting as the lecturer on anatomy without the aid of a text, while dissecting the body and demonstrating the organs and other relevant anatomy. He also encouraged students to perform dissection themselves, as Vesalius considered direct, hands-on observation to be the only reliable source. This was a significant departure from the traditional way of teaching anatomy. Of course, he still relied heavily on the anatomical knowledge of Galen. In 1514... Galen's writings were published for the first time directly from Greek to Latin. Prior to this, the main source of his writings came from texts translated from Syriac and Arabic. The Aldine Press in Venice edited the complete works of Galen in Latin in 1525, further solidifying his unquestionable authority on medicine, and he became the anatomic authority accepted by the church. However, in 1541, while working in Bologna, Vesalius discovered that all of Galen's research had been restricted to animals, since dissection was banned in ancient Rome. Galen had dissected Barbary macaques instead, assuming that they were structurally similar. Amazingly, until Vesalius pointed out Galen's substitution of animal for human anatomy, it had gone unnoticed and had long been the basis of studying human anatomy. This had led to a number of errors in Galen's teaching that Vesalius' hands-on approach began to point out. Of course, there was resistance to changing the teachings of Galen, given the stature that he held in the medical world. In fact, academic physicians considered any deviation of human anatomy from that described by Galen to be due to decadence and degeneration of mankind. While the list of corrections to Galen's anatomy made by Vesalius could fill a book, and essentially would do so, as we'll see, let's cover a few of these long-held beliefs so we can understand what Vesalius was dealing with. Let's start with some easy ones. Galen had assumed that the mandible, or jawbone, consisted of two bones, but Vesalius disproved this, showing it is composed of only one bone. In Galen's observations of the ape, he discovered that their sternum consisted of seven parts and assumed that this would be true for humans. Vesalius discovered that the human sternum consists of only three parts. And Vesalius also disproved the common belief that men had one rib fewer than women, although some people still believe this to this day, and disproved Galen's assertion that men have more teeth than women. Vesalius also made some significant changes to the understanding of nerves. He defined a nerve as a mode of transmitting sensation and motion, refuting his contemporaries' claims that ligaments, tendons, and aponeuroses were three types of nerve units. They are not. Vesalius believed that the brain and the nervous system are the center of the mind and emotion, in contrast to the common Aristotelian belief that the heart was the center of the body. He believed that nerves themselves originated from the brain and not the heart, and demonstrated that nerves were not hollow as had been believed. Vesalius claimed that the kidneys were not a filter device for urine to pass through, but rather the kidneys served to filter blood, and that excretions from the kidneys traveled through the ureters to the bladder. In his description of the left atrioventricular valve in the heart, Vesalius suggested that it looks like a bishop's mitre or headdress, which is why we call it the mitral valve today. And speaking of hearts, I want to focus on Vesalius' greatest challenge to Galen's teaching, which involves a basic understanding of the heart, blood, and circulation. Let me briefly describe Galen's theory. In the stomach, food is turned into chyle, a word meaning juice, which is still used to describe lymphatic fluid laden with fats that have been absorbed from the intestines. The chyle is carried by the portal vein to the liver, where it is turned into blood and imbued with the natural spirit. The blood then moves from the liver to supply all parts of the body, with each part of the body attracting and retaining only enough blood for its immediate requirements, which it is there consumed. So basically, blood is made in the liver and consumed by the tissues, not circulated continuously in a closed-loop system as we now know, thanks to English physician William Harvey who described this in his book, De Motu Cordis, in 1628. But here's where Galen's theory gets really weird. A portion of this enhanced blood was then attracted to the vena cava and traveled to the right ventricle of the heart, where impurities were carried off to the lung to be expelled. And if you consider carbon dioxide and impurity, there's some truth there. A small portion of the blood also moved through invisible pores in the interventricular septum into the left ventricle, where it combined with the inspired pneuma to form the vital spirit. Pneuma is formed in the lungs from inhaled air. This vital spirit was drawn into the aorta and arterial system to be distributed to the body to help regulate body temperature, among other things. Now, Galen assumed that arteries carried the purest blood to high organs such as the brain and lungs from the left ventricle of the heart, while veins carried blood to the lesser organs such as the stomach from the right ventricle. And as we've seen, for this to be correct, there had to be communication between the ventricles which Galen claimed to have found. So paramount was Galen's authority that for 1400 years, a succession of anatomists had claimed to find these holes, until Vesalius admitted that he could not find them. Initially, he was hesitant to challenge Galen. In his own words, quote, "...in presenting reasons for the construction of the heart and the use of the parts, I have in large degree fitted my discourse to the teachings of Galen, not because I believe them to be in entire agreement with the truth, but because I am yet hesitant to present a completely new use and function for those parts." Vesalius became convinced that Galen's claims of a porous interventricular septum were false. However, it was a bridge too far for him to dispute Galen's physiological theories. It wasn't until the second edition that Vesalius described the interventricular septum as waterproof, and in fact, his description of the mitral valve mentioned earlier was an attempt to explain the blood flow in Galen's theory. Now finally, we should address Galen's third spirit called the animal spirit. In his theory, some of the blood that goes to the brain passes through a network of blood vessels at the base of the skull, which he called the rete mirabla, or the marvelous net. The only problem is this structure does not exist in humans. But it does exist in sheep and other ungulates, which means hoofed animals. Now, initially, Vesalius would dissect a sheep or ox head along with his usual public dissections to help students identify it. Eventually, though, Vesalius also rejected this teaching of Galen. In fact, in his first anatomical text, he included it. But by the publication of his main work five years later, he'd removed it. In his own words, quote, I cannot sufficiently marvel at my own stupidity. I, who have so labored in my love for Galen, that I have never demonstrated the human head without that of a lamb or ox, to show in the latter what I could not see in the former, lest forsooth I should fail that universally familiar plexus. For in no way the carotics, which means the carotid arteries, form a plexus reticularis in man, as Galen alleges, end quote. I think that's pretty indicative of how difficult it was in those times to reject the teachings of the ancients. Now let's talk about Vesalius' publications. His first, which came out just one year into his teaching career at the University of Padua, was an anatomical text called the Tabulae Anatomicae Sex, usually just called the Tabulae Sex, in 1538, with the illustrator Johann van Kalkar, a German-born Italian painter. This publication was done to help the students at the dissection table and to prevent them from using erroneous charts. It consisted of only three woodcuts of the skeleton drawn by Calcar. And three woodcuts of the vascular tree and viscera which Vesalius had drawn himself. So this was really just six pictures of anatomy which students could keep as study aids. They proved to be enormously successful and were plagiarized throughout Europe. All right so let's get to the carne or meat of the subject. One of the most famous books in the history of medicine, the De Humani Corporis Fabrica on the fabric of the human body was published in 1543 by Vesalius at the tender age of 28. He took residence in Basel, Switzerland, to help the printer Johannes Aporonus publish it. The tome was dedicated to the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. Of interest, while in Basel, Vesalius conducted a public dissection of the body of Jakob Kerer von Gebweiler, a notorious felon from the city. He assembled and articulated the bones, donating the skeleton to the University of Basel. The preparation, called the basal skeleton, is Vesalius' only well-preserved skeletal preparation and the world's oldest surviving anatomical preparation and is still on display at the Anatomical Museum of the University of Basel. The Fabrica was an instant hit. It consisted of seven books based on bones and cartilages, ligaments and muscles, veins and arteries, nerves, gastrointestinal and reproductive organs, organs of the thorax, and the brain. It used 227 woodcut illustrations. Approximately 700 copies survive to this day. It seems hard to believe now, but at the time, it was the first scientific book to integrate text with pictures. Previous anatomical texts were largely descriptive with very few rough illustrations. How boring. At the same time, his third and final publication, which was a much less expensive accompanying work, came out just two weeks after the Fabrica, and was called De Humani Corporis Fabrica Librorium Epitome, or Epitome for short. Dedicated to Philip, son of Emperor Charles V, it consisted of nine woodcuts of the skeleton, muscles, nerves, veins, and arteries, with a descriptive section of human anatomy. In addition, it included two woodcuts of a naked man and woman to illustrate surface anatomy. The publication of the Fabrica marked the establishment of anatomy as a modern descriptive science, and undermined the previously indisputable truth of Galen's anatomical pronouncements. While it was not the first such work based on actual dissection, nor even the first work of this era, the production quality, highly detailed and intricate plates, and the likelihood that the artists who produced it were clearly present in person at the dissections, made it an instant classic. Of course, pirated editions almost immediately became available. Now, just because it sold well does not mean that it was universally accepted. For like many of the innovations we've covered in this podcast, this one was not immune to the knee-jerk reaction to anything that challenged the status quo. Here's a quote from Silvius, a former teacher of Vesalius, about the publication of the Fabrica. Let no one give heed to that very ignorant and arrogant man who, through his ignorance, ingratitude, impudence, and impiety, Denies everything his deranged and feeble vision could not locate. Shortly after the release of his book in 1544, Vesalius was invited to become the imperial physician to the court of Emperor Charles V, and he informed the Venetian Senate that he would leave his post in Padua. He had presented the emperor with a unique color copy of the Fabrica, which likely led to the invitation. After giving up his chair, Vesalius, for reasons unknown, destroyed all of his notebooks and anatomical sketches. There is some speculation that he did it to avoid persecution by the church for challenging existing dogma about the human form. At the imperial court, he had to deal with other physicians mocking him for being a mere barber-surgeon instead of an academic working on the respected basis of theory, something we saw in the last episode with Paré as well. Over the next 11 years, he traveled with the court, treating injuries caused by battle or tournaments, performing post mortems, administering medications, and writing private letters addressing specific medical questions. For example, during those years, Vesalius wrote the Epistle on the China Root, a short text on the properties of a medicinal plant whose efficacy he doubted, as well as a defense of his anatomical findings. In fact, he continued to be attacked for his challenging of the dogma of Galen. In 1551, Charles V commissioned an inquiry in Salamanca, to investigate the religious implications of his methods. Vesalius was cleared by the board, but the attacks continued. Four years later, one of his main detractors and former professors, Jacobus Sylvius, mentioned earlier, published an article that claimed that the human body itself had changed since Galen had studied it, which sounds like a real stretch to try and defend these ancient beliefs, but illustrates just how entrenched those beliefs were. Following the abdication of Charles V in 1556, Vesalius became physician to his successor and son Philip II, who rewarded him with a pension for life by making him a court palatine, a title for a high-level official. Vesalius went on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land in 1564, some say in penance after being accused of dissecting a living body. He sailed with the Venetian fleet, and when they reached Jerusalem, Vesalius received a message from the Venetian senate, requesting him again to accept the Padawan professorship, which had become vacant on the death of his friend and pupil, Fallopius. Also known as Gabriel Fallopio, his friend was an Italian anatomist who described a number of important structures, and is remembered by the names of the Fallopian tube, among others. Upon Vesalius' return, the ship struggled for days against adverse winds in the Ionian Sea, and he was shipwrecked on the island of Zacinthus at the age of 49. He died there, and his body was buried somewhere on the island. Surprisingly, Vesalius was in such debt at the time of his death that a benefactor kindly paid for his funeral. The date of his death is given as October 15, 1564. His legacy, the De Humani Corporis Fabrica, on the fabric of the human body, can be considered one of the most influential books on human anatomy. His work showed that valid anatomical knowledge could be gained only through dissecting the human body and not through the study of traditional texts. He turned anatomy, a field upon which all surgery stands, into an empirical science. The great American neurosurgeon Dr. Harvey Cushing, see Episodes 42 and 43, was one of the most renowned experts on Vesalius and wrote that the year 1543, quote, is memorable for the appearance in Nuremberg and Basel of two books, one of which altered the course of human thought in regard to the macrocosm, the other in regard to man himself. Each of them was written by a doctor of medicine. With the De Revolutionibus Orbium Celestium, Copernicus at a stroke dethroned the Aristotelian theory of a fixed and immovable world. With the De Corpori Humani Fabrica, Vesalius opened the way for the modern study of anatomy." that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. In the next episode, we'll cover Hugh Young, a pioneer in urology who contributed greatly to surgery for prostate cancer and a legend at Johns Hopkins. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there. Or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. As always, thanks for listening.